people do get occasionally stigmatized unfairly um, for leaving against medical advice or having irregular discharges, when in reality they, they may not be ready, but that doesn't mean they're never ready. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. I am with Terry Ann Bolte today, who is a clinical psychologist uh, with the Department of Veterans Affairs, and uh, she runs the uh, substance use for residential rehabilitation, that program? Yes. Okay. So just starting off, I think many of us have heard about the VA, just that term, mm -hmm. but can you tell us a little bit more about the VA as a national organization and the mission and goals and that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity yeah. to be here, and I'm really honored. Yeah, I'm glad you, so uh, you. agreed. I, I appreciate it as well. So the Department of Veterans Affairs is a fairly large entity, and it's broken into three branches, and it consists of the Veterans Benefits Administration, the National Cemetery Administration, and the Veterans Health Administration, which is where I work. And Veterans Health Administration often known as just VA, is uh, something that originated in 1865. It was born into being by, at the time, President Lincoln, approximately one month before this, the end of the Civil War. And he, at that time, authorized the first ever Soldiers and Sailors Asylum to provide medical care to discharged members of the Union Army and Navy. Um, so it was the first of its kind in the world to offer civilian medical care to veterans, and the first was in Togus, Maine, and it's still in operation. Um, part of Lincoln's promise at that time was to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, um, which uh, is something that you can still see inscriptions on VA buildings even today. And more recently, the modern day mission is to honor America's veterans by providing exceptional health care that improves their health and well-being. So VA is the largest integrated healthcare system, and it's comprised of 170 medical centers and over 1,000 outpatient clinics. And it services 9 million veterans um, every year. Wow. So it's, it's very large, very complex, and has a broad array of services. Um, so first, what interested you in, in the VA and psychology and those things? I got into it almost haphazardly with the VA, but with psychology, the seeds of that were really planted when I was in high school. And at the time, in the late 90s, there was a man named Dave, Daniel Goleman, who was a psychologist at Harvard, and he coined the term, which is now popularized, called emotional intelligence. And he was really interested in uh, delayed gratification and instant gratification and how those features of us will function to our advantage or not later in life. And I was really fascinated by the concept of instant gratification and thought that was probably something that I needed to improve my skill at. Um, and I, I actually replicated some of the experiments that he described in his book dating back to the 1960s, where children were presented with marshmallows and asked to 
either have the marshmallow right then and there or wait 15 minutes to get two marshmallows. And the percentage of children that are able to do that is only about 30%. Most people are not naturally good at delayed gratification skills. And that was um, something that's been studied over time. And it shows that people who have better, perhaps, delayed gratification um, uh, have have lives that are marked by more stability, um, perhaps more success, depending upon how you define the word. And I, I think that was really how my interest in addiction got seated, because clearly there's a lot of impulsivity as part of addiction and in, investment in instant gratification, difficulty with delayed gratification. And so I, I began my career at Transylvania University back in the late 90s, and I got a degree in psychology and then went on to Eastern Kentucky University and got a master's in clinical psychology that had a slight child focus. And when I was in graduate school at the University of Kentucky, I was there for a PhD in counseling psychology. I got um, linked up with an advisor who eventually transferred to the VA. And I worked with her on research and in clinical practice and then evolved from there into obtaining a staff position at the Cincinnati VA. Awesome. And then talk about your role, your your current role, and uh, you you mentioned uh, addiction, and I think that's uh, sounds like the majority of, of what you do. But I'm interested to hear. So, um, my my path to the VA, for one, I do want to make note that part of my interest in working with veterans is because my father is a drafted Vietnam War era veteran, and he um, did not have to go to Vietnam because his two brothers actually did go into Vietnam, and he went to Germany. But I have a lot of connection and passion for veterans, knowing his history and some of the circumstances that caused him to be drafted. Um, as far as addiction work goes, originally I was working primarily in PTSD. And something that I noticed very readily is that many veterans who struggle with PTSD have addiction issues. And so I naturally got more interested in learning about addiction and ended up focusing on that in my internship year. And after that, took a job in the outpatient recovery program. Um, and since then, I've gone on to become a psychologist in the residential program, which is essentially an inpatient program. And following that time, um, I became the program manager, and I've been the program manager of the residential program for the last three years. Great. And I'm super excited about this, too, because I also have a, a vested interest, I guess you could say, because uh, my grandpa was in the Merchant Marines. His brother got shot down in World War II. And then my dad was in Vietnam and spent uh, a portion of that time in the Medical Service Corps. So I can't imagine the stuff that he saw. Uh, he never once talked about it. So I don't know if he came back and sought any sort of help or, uh, but th that's part of my interest in this is, you know, the mental health part of it, you know, having been through mental health issues and addiction you know, for the majority of my life, that um, this is very, all very interesting. So I can't wait to get, get into it. But first, um, for those that enlist in the military, they immediately, I think, go into very intense 
chaotic, fast-paced environment. Uh, do you think that uh, when they go to boot camp, their initial training, do you think it's taught pretty early for them to pack away emotion and bury it down for multiple reasons, whether it be it could possibly cloud their view on the mission and what they're doing and kind of just a natural hardening of soldiers in the beginning? I do, and I think they do that for good reason. And so it makes sense in context why they would want people to subordinate any emotion and be able to focus on their mission. And it's for the purpose of their survival and the survival of their peers. Um, one component is that with people who enlist, they are more likely than the general population to have endured trauma in childhood. And so for a lot of people who enter the military, they've already been through childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, or verbal abuse, or poverty, or other associated traumas. And so it's not everyone, of course, but there is a higher than usual percentage of people in the military who come in having already been traumatized and are seeking perhaps the stability that the military provides. So if you're already coming in having had prior trauma, you can imagine the vulnerability that exists before then you become traumatized in wartime or other even peace yeah, time. Yeah. Um, so do you think it, 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 some of these questions are obvious, but I just want to talk about them, but mm -hmm. you think it sets them up to have a void or a difficult time processing emotion or situations, you know, as it affects their mental health? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. I think, um, and I, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't say that to mean that people who enter the military exclusively have that issue. Um, I, I think our society is getting better, but we do not do a great job of training children to manage and regulate their emotions as a general societal principle. And so um, for people who have been through trauma, yeah, I think it, it, it creates more of a problem um, and a more of a vulnerability, perhaps. And to dovetail off what you said, I, as I talk about this with the keeping with the show with mental health, I'm not putting everybody in the military under a certain flag. I just uh, want to get to talking about those things. So mm -hmm. I don't want to seem like I'm pigeonholing or um, scrutinizing at all uh, to everybody out there. But um, so a large population of the men and women uh, that experience challenges with their mental health as a result of this profession, if you want to call it that, or job, um, what is it about being in the military that causes distress and you know, potentially some have lasting negative effects mm -hmm. on their mental health? Oh, goodness. I think that is a uniquely complicated question. Sure. And so you really have so many different um, people and so many different presentations once they leave the military. I think the, the obvious answer to that question is when you go through combat. That has its own unique set of challenges to mental health, most notably PTSD. And there's also other components that are being more formally recognized and treated like, for example, moral injury. Um, there's also a component where 
um, a lot of people, when they leave the structure of the military, feel a great sense of grief and loss around the structure, the status, the mission, the purpose, and trying to regain a footing in general society can be quite challenging. The adjustment may be difficult, and you've lost your support network when you leave, and, and you go back to a different support network, perhaps, but um, the people who you went through trauma with or the people who you became the closest to have suddenly moved back to their homes and you get dispersed and lose those connections that might have kept you grounded during difficult times. And you see some of the, the movies out there, whether they're accurate or not, but the ones that are good, you can really see how that affects them, whether you know, they feel like they're bailing on the guys that are still there mm -hmm. and gals. Um, but uh, so moral injury is that when they get back and say, I did all this stuff, what for? Yeah, I think that can be a component to it and also reconciling um, some of the some of the things you may have done during combat that are inconsistent with your earlier held moral code and trying to find purpose and meaning in, in that it can be really challenging. Obviously, it's worse for people that are in active combat as far as effects of mental health and um, substance use and, and struggles. Um, but you also made it sound like uh, e even for anyone that, that may not deploy, it, it is still, there's still opportunity there for challenges. Mm -hmm. Even for people who do not, a, a lot of the patients that I treat, um, for, for example, may have endured sexual assault. And that may or may not have happened during deployment. It may have happened in basic training. It could have happened during um, stateside missions, there's different different um, permutations. And so the, some of the specific struggles that you see for the at-risk category when they come back are substance use, PTSD, suicide, which I want to talk about, mm -hmm. which is a big one. But are there other things besides the, the big three that I just mentioned that I might not be thinking about or others might not be thinking about? Uh, depression. Yeah. And anxiety, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, pardon me here, but I'm going to be ruffling through some pages here, uh, everybody, just for a second. But there was an article that I I looked up from the Chicago Tribune, and it was about a guy that um, had was having you know came home from Desert Storm, was having nightmares, and thought about suicide, but um, was able to get the help that he needed. But um, he didn't ask for help because he didn't want to be seen as weak. So stigma, obviously, with the name of the show, right. huge part of this. Uh, but for a long time, didn't ask for help because he didn't want to be seen as weak. Mm -hmm. Is that a common occurrence yeah. or theme that goes on with uh, as regards to stigma? Yeah, and, and I think we're doing better with this than we did in the past, where there's more efforts to engage people early on after their separation and even prior to separation to try to help um, destigmatize mental health and substance abuse in general. Um, so I know I can tell you with regard to suicide that the VA's top clinical priority right now is 
suicide prevention. And we've adopted a public health approach that's grounded in four key areas. Um, we do primary prevention to help try to target people prior to any suicide behavior, suicidal behavior. Um, we really look at the whole health of the person beyond just mental health, but also physical health, spiritual health, etc. And we, there's an effort towards obtaining data and research, um, as well as collaboration within communities to help prevent suicide. Um, so, you know, in general, even looking at non-veteran populations, suicide has increased 25% since the turn of the century. Per period, overall. Period, okay. yes. So it is a public health concern. Yeah. And with with regard to veterans specifically the um, estimates vary but most recently the estimates are that there are about 6000 or more veteran deaths by suicide per year which is roughly 17 per day most often by way of firearms and so the the VA has made a lot of efforts to flexibly and effectively respond um, so they they identify, for example, certain veterans that they call REACH veterans. And these are people who, by the magic of predictive analytics, are identified as being at risk for suicide. So they have certain, uh, certain traits or characteristics that, when combined, make them more likely than the general population to commit suicide. And so they're identified as, as REACH veterans. And currently there's approximately 30,000 who've been identified and there are special outreach efforts to address the needs of those folks as part of that primary prevention strategy. And the, Real quick. Yeah. So, so that's done through testing, personality testing, and, and other things like that. Is that right? No, not necessarily. I think it has to do with age, race, okay. um, engagement right. in, previous high-risk behaviors. Okay. There's a lot of different forms of data. Okay. All right. Um, so the VA, over the last year, has hired an, a thousand additional mental health professionals, and um, they've made efforts to do outreach events. They've created the Veterans Crisis Line, which uh, to date since its inception in July of 2007 has serviced 3.8 million calls. And that's dispatched 112,000 emergency services to veterans in crisis. Um, also, as far as getting help early, uh, over over the last year, um, there, there have been efforts to really connect veterans within one month of separation from the service. And so they, uh, through, through the VA Concierge for Care program, have been able to contact ninety nine over 99% of veterans. And there's a lot of funding. In, in addition, in fiscal year 18, there was $12.2 allotted to various um, campaigns like media campaigns and other strategies to uh, help forward the prevention efforts. And as you know, there's um, executive orders that were written in 2018 that call for the integration between the VA, the Department of Defense, and the Department of Homeland Security so that we can partner these organizations together to capture people more quickly following their separation. Uh, so substance use, PTSD, uh, do, do are there percentages of people that have one, have you know multiple? 
I mean, is it just kind of all over the board with uh, what, what it, people it, struggle it with? It is, yeah. And I think the prevalence estimates, again, they vary. And what I can tell you with my specialization, which is primarily in substance use disorder, that while not everybody I see has PTSD, many, many of them have childhood trauma or adulthood trauma or more likely both. So there is a high prevalence of an overlap between uh, substance use disorder and trauma or PTSD. Yeah. In mental health, uh, I've never met anybody that has an addiction that does not have an underlying mental health because mm-hmm. you know, we're covering up something bigger. Yeah. We're numbing out trauma or uh, bad experiences or anxiety, depression, anything to get out of our own heads. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I was curious on PTSD, do you offer EMDR? We do. Yeah. We actually, that was um, a treatment. I don't, since I don't work in the trauma recovery center, I, I don't know what the exact amount of uh, clients who've undergone EMDR or the number of providers who provide that treatment. But I do know that since it's been recognized as an evidence-based treatment, then we have um, been able to offer it through the VA. Yeah. And so that is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm-hmm. Um are you versed enough that you can explain what it is? Okay, so when I was in rehab um, for my substance use and mental health issues, um, they the place where I went offered that. Mm-hmm. And somebody that I was there with who had a lot of childhood trauma and adolescent trauma uh, went to try this and was she, I mean, a very wounded individual mentally and went and just tried this and came back from a session and was, I'm not going to say she was cured, but she said it's an unbelievable. She didn't know how, I mean, how it was like a miracle, mm-hmm. you know, and it's something along the lines of, you know, a light with a pen and going back and forth and things with your eyes, but um, it, it can't, it's for people that have, specific traumatic events like it's not for anxiety and depression you got to have an event Mm -hmm. that somebody's been through that they can you know hopefully wipe out is the goal but i was just curious about it because i think it's a a great thing and i don't think it's marketed Mm -hmm. enough Mm -hmm. to people that have specific trauma so that was more of just a a curious thing but so what what kind of programming do you have for substance use specifically So we are very fortunate um, at the VA because we have a range of different options and we function on a closed loop system where we have different levels of care that follow the um, American Society of Addiction Medicine's levels of care criteria and we can help people at any stage in recovery. So for people who are most acute, we have inpatient or outpatient detoxification services Um, We have residential rehabilitation, which is the program that I manage, and it's an approximately 21-day program for up to 17 veterans, and they do um, structured treatment throughout the day that includes a combination of group and individual therapy, education classes, medication, and um, overall 
oversight of their, their medical needs. So we offer outpatient substance-dependent services, which could be group and individual therapy for people who are no longer in those most acute phases of addiction, and they've managed to sustain, they're, they're at a point where they can sustain treatment on an outpatient basis. And we also have a clinic that is called SAPTSD, which is entirely devoted to treating people who have comorbid substance use disorder and PTSD, such as who we were talking about uh, previously. We have a tobacco treatment clinic, and we also have an opioid substitution program, buprenorphine treatment clinic, and Vivitrol management clinic. So one uh, program in particular that I want to highlight is tobacco treatment because it's an often overlooked part of addiction. For for most people who struggle with addiction, approximately 85% also use tobacco. And so our um, prior director, a couple back, was really uh, key in getting um, funding for additional tobacco treatment services. And we have a wide availability of pharmacotherapy, of counseling, of group support, uh, things that are, I think, beyond what the norm is in the community. We also offer medications like Chantix for tobacco cessation. Uh, In our program, in the residential program, it was the the first that we know of in the nation among VAs to go tobacco-free. So, and that was only in 2015. VAs now nationally are tobacco-free. The whole campus? The whole campus. They don't even have spots that you can... Nope. Wow. Nope. Because people overlook... You go to an AA meeting and you can't even get through the door through all the smokers. But um, I think that's for a couple of reasons. You know, they come back and they have uh, acute substance use issues and people, you know, therapists and people say, you know, one thing at a time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to quit smoking or, or, or something along those lines because uh, you can't build Rome in a day, you know. Um, but people overlook the fact that even though tobacco is free, that's the toughest one of them all. Yes. In my in, in my opinion, um, that, I mean, tobacco is a tough thing to stop, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's great. How was that received? Did you get some serious pushback with? It, you know, it's interesting because I think that it's literally the opposite of what people think, mm. where you do get the message quite frequently that you you should only try to stop one thing at a time. But what research demonstrates is that when people do all of them at once, they have a higher chance of maintaining sobriety from their most problematic substance, which may be alcohol, opiates, or mm-hmm. other things. Right. And so it was, as you might imagine, not the most popular and welcome <laughs> move for us. But when we have surveyed veterans who've gone through our program, 70% of them have identified the tobacco-free policy as at least marginally helpful, if not extremely helpful in their recovery. Most people support it, even though most of them do use tobacco, which I think is a pretty remarkable finding. Do you think 21 days is enough? And this is just being candid. Oh, ab- no. Abs- and I think most most people who go through our program would probably agree with me. And they, um, it, it doesn't provide, it is not designed for the entirety of the acute phase of treatment. What our program is designed for is to help people get a good foundation 
for continued work. And we are very upfront about that, that this treatment is not a panacea. It's not going to be the thing that cures your addiction. It is a starting point. It's a, a, pl- a safe place to get a good foundation of recovery. And then continuing care after care, you also offer that as well? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Because that when, when people come out of a 21-day, 28-day, whatever it is, that's where they get in trouble. If they don't have a plan, if there's not a bridge, you got time on your hands, you know, so that, that's critical to have a discharge plan and treatment plan. Absolutely. So we that's where our outpatient services come in. Um, a lot of our patients go to what's known as the Fort Thomas domiciliary, where they receive additional treatment for several months and also get into like work therapy and continue to work on mental health issues. It's a mile from my house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a big place. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge place. I actually uh, go to a, uh, not as much as I should, but there's a NA meeting inside of the VA that that I've, I've gone to before. So I want to remark a little bit on the Cincinnati VA in general. Okay. I don't know if this is the right place to do it. Sure. Absolutely. So the Cincinnati VA is broken into two campuses. One we have talked about, which is the Fort Thomas domiciliary. And we also have the main campus, which is in on Vine Street, 3200 Vine Street in um, Clifton. And it, the building... The main building was established in the 1950s, and we service veterans from 17 counties across Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. We also have six um, community-based outpatient clinics throughout the area. And the Cincinnati VA is a teaching hospital, and it's physically and functionally connected with the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. So we have... um, a lot of trainees who come into our facility and a lot of the, the professionals who are staff at the Cincinnati VA also work um, with the university in some capacity. So we we offer there, in addition to mental health, a full range of patient care services. So we have primary care, dentistry, surgery, psychiatry, uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation, neurology, hospice, palliative care, short and long-term rehab, as well as specialty services for newer generation veterans. You might hear of OEF, OIF, OND, which is Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Operation New Dawn. So these are people who are primarily from 2001 and forward. Um, We also have a mobile health unit, which goes out into the community to deliver health services, especially to outreach to homeless veterans. And we have telemedicine. We also have staff who enter jails and treatment courts to bridge a connection and, and identify veterans through that mechanism. So we have an enormous array of services, and we employ in the mental health care line over 350 dedicated professionals, ranging from nursing to psychiatry to social work to licensed professional counselors, psychologists, um, etc. So we have quite and a, a large breadth of services at varying levels of care. And I just really want your listeners to know the types of services that we offer. So in case they are veterans and haven't gotten connected to the VA or thinking about getting connected to the VA, or maybe they have, um, just to be aware of their options. And, and you, you mentioned closed loop before. It's wonderful that, I mean, you, you can be cared for for anything for the rest of your life mm-hmm. type of, yes, yeah, so that's great. So this is a hot topic, and I may be wrong here, so correct me, but um, 
wait times. I think a lot of there's a lot of the um, VA comes under fire for you know people that come uh, retires not the word but from active duty deployment and they may be stateside, um, but they they fight for their country. They they potentially make the ultimate sacrifice and then they come home and they can't see somebody for three months, six months or, or whatever, you know, there's stats out there, but I wanted to get your thought on that. Well, it's interesting and talk about stigmatized. And I think the VA is in and of itself quite stigmatized. I, it, the media reports have always been quite disparate with my experience at the VA. And I'll, although I can't really speak to wait times nationally, I can speak to um, the way our services operate at the Cincinnati VA and the mental health care line and in um, the substance dependence program specifically. So the way we are designed is for on-demand access. So we have people available in the substance dependence program from 8 to 4.30 to do walk-in intakes. We also have walk-in detoxification services, which are um, a, not a typical part of hospital settings where, where we evaluate patients on the spot, make determinations of whether they would require um, more intensive inpatient level of detoxification or outpatient. Um, we also offer what's called a psychiatric evaluation clinic that's embedded in the e emergency department. And 24 hours a day, it is open and can um, take patients who come in uh, for any reason and be evaluated and then treated as indicated. So for our for the residential program, um, our wait times vary from one to one day to two weeks, and we we do a really amazing job of being uh, enormously efficient with that system so that we can we can get people in and um, expedite access to care as quickly as possible because as you know, time is of the essence. Sure. And you have to strike while the iron is absolutely hot. Right. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, those numbers are great. And, and I listened to a podcast the other day called The Gist and David Shulkin, who was the uh, secretary for a couple years of the VA, was interviewed and just some things that he talked about. Um, he, When he came in, wait times were a big, big thing, which was in 2017. Um, but he was his first, the first concern was people that were looking, waiting for urgent care mm -hmm. more than 30 days. Um, and I guess there, he, I forget the term he, he used, but it's a national concentrated push where everything was put, put aside. And this was like a, you know, a mandate and took, so the, the, that population of urgent care was about 60,000 veterans. Mm -hmm. And then, and within one week of doing this around the clock stuff, got it down to a thousand. So, um, it seems like that push is sticking mm -hmm. and that those times are, are going down, which is, which is great. And a, a couple other interesting things uh, from this podcast, um, they did a study with um, that versus the, the VA, wait times in the VA and wait times where the general public go, the hospitals that we all go uh, and seek treatment um, are better than the, the VA times, wait times are better than mm -hmm. the private sector, which I thought was uh, interesting. I thought it was fantastic um, because you, it, it may be a myth, but you always hear about the wait times and stuff. So the fact that that's getting um, better is, is is great. And it seems like the current administration with President Trump, it, it uh, 
getting very strong support mm -hmm. for veterans in the VA. Um, so I, I think that the sense of urgency is there. And like you said, there's no more important population to get help than this. Are there a, a lot of people, you know, homeless veterans or, you know, with, with stigma that don't come to get help, even though all these resources are there for whatever reason? Yeah, I think that's a, it's hard to quantify sure. who isn't coming. Right. Um, but I think that there are some things that prevent people from accessing care, like uh, lack of knowledge, maybe one, um, lack of interest in the VA. Uh, they may have alternative forms of health care. They may have stigma around the VA or stigma around the conditions for which they might otherwise seek treatment like mental health or substance use disorder. So I think there that's certainly a possibility. There's also a lot of, th there are a number of outreach efforts too, like I had mentioned with, um, we have a division called Veterans Justice Outreach where we have uh, five designated social workers who work in close combination with local jails and courts to again, try to identify those veterans and engage them in treatment. So I think there are also, um, with the telemedicine services, they're trying to engage more rural consumers who might otherwise be prohibited from coming in because of transportation um, or just drive time, lack of transportation, drive time, all of that to try to help access the previously less likely groups. What do you think the temperature is from veterans about the VA? As far as their opinion of it, because we hear the myths and um, but with everything you're explaining, it seems like it is a well-oiled machine and you can get right in there. But back to the original question, what do you think uh, the, the view is from veterans about the VA? So in the – you know, I can't really, again, speak to the VA more largely, but I can speak from my vantage point. And in the residential program that I operate, we have a graduation some uh, kind of a ceremony for every veteran who completes the program successfully, which is most of them. And we bring them in to meet with our treatment team and uh, just talk with them about their progress in treatment and congratulate them on a successful program and talk about their strengths. And by far and away, most people remark positively on their experience. In the 20 to one day program. Nobody likes being in rehab. So it's not, you know, the most conducive environment for appreciation, <laughs> happiness, and positivity. And yet a lot of times when the veterans, you know, come into that graduation ceremony, they thank us, they express appreciation for treatment, and we express appreciation for them trusting us with their care. So my from my vantage point, I do hear grumblings at times, but most of the time, I think people appreciate the care that they have and the people who are providing it. Well, the, that 21 days, like you said, of a foundation, I mean, that's a foundation to save their life Yes, from all kinds of things, experiences, trauma, uh, substance use. Uh, so, I mean, my experience when I went to rehab, even though I didn't want to be there, you know, I didn't no. never thought, never saw myself being in rehab. But had I not gone, I'd, I wouldn't have gotten the, the coping skills and the skills that I lacked. So, yeah, I, I can imagine them thanking 
mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. in the group for something like that because you know the the, the alternative is not good. Yes, you know, for people that that don't get the care and don't choose to get the care, uh, what I'm not looking for specific numbers here, but are there a lot of people that leave against medical advice? You know, don't during the 21 days that mm-hmm. that they bail and um, out of anger or don't you know just defiance and yeah, I I don't know what the exact percentages. We do have a fair number of folks who come in and leave shortly thereafter irregularly or against medical advice. Um, it's not the it's not the more common occurrence. The more common occurrence is for people to remain in the program, stay engaged, and graduate successfully. Um, for the people who come in, my guess as to why they are leaving most frequently is ambivalence. That they are they're kind of on the fence, as most people are when they enter addiction treatment, as to whether they really want to give up um, give up using. And that is pretty normal. And some people might be on leaning to the the side of the fence that's pulling them back. And we have seen people over and over again who come in, leave against medical advice, and then over time enter a different place of readiness in their recovery and engage successfully and maintain from there. So you, you really just never know. That's something that I've learned about working with this population is that you can never predict the someone's course, um, how successful they will be, and a lot of times people come in and, and I I don't you know maybe give them the most confident estimate of their likelihood to remain sober and they do, and vice versa. Sure. So it's you know I think people do get occasionally stigmatized unfairly. Um, for leaving against medical advice or having irregular discharges, when in reality they, they may not be ready, but that doesn't mean they're never ready. Since it um, it's part of their deal is that they can come in and get care. Do most people self admit? Uh, yes. So most people, our program has been around for about fifty years, so it's it's pretty well known. And I think there there are a fair number of self referrals. A lot of people get referred to us through outpatient services and other mechanisms internally within the hospital. Sometimes we take out-of-town consumers who, for whatever reason, don't want to go or can't go to their local VA for that service. Um, Most people come in voluntarily. Some people are mandated through the courts, and that's okay. That's what I wanted wanted to talk about because it seems like the numbers would be better since more people are self-admitting. Mm-hmm. So they're at a point where they want to get help, where the general public, you could have your parents forcing you to go. You could have the court forcing you to go. Uh, a lot of outside factors that are, are pushing you to do that. So um, yeah, but the, the court thing, again, like you said, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's part of the, uh, as long as people get the help that they need. Well, that's the goal. Even if people are court ordered to treatment, there is a modicum of them at least who wants to be there or they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So if there's some basic level of fire, I can fan those flames. And that is, I have, I'm atheist um, or yes, atheist as to the reason people come in. I don't care if they're court ordered, if they're self-referred, if they are feeling pressure from their family. As long as they get there, we'll work with them. And I think there there's a part of them that does know that they need 
treatment and we can we can work with that. And like you said, even if they go out and come back mm-hmm. when they're ready, mm-hmm. that's okay too. I mean, you guys are going to be there. So, yeah. I mentioned this earlier, but we offer three uh, basic types of medication. We offer more than three, but the three primary ones that we offer to people who have opioid use disorder are methadone, uh, buprenorphine, or suboxone, and Vivitrol or naltrexone. So we have very robust programming uh, within the medication-assisted therapy component to our treatment. We also have a very robust OOEND, which is um, opioid overdose and naloxone education distribution. Um, So we are prolific in offering folks Narcan. um, And that is available to all patients who come through our programming so that they can carry it with them if needed. And um, I'm particularly proud of those aspects of our programming and the providers who work very diligently with folks to get them connected as quickly as possible to medical treatment knowing that um, as we progress scientifically and neurologically that we that with opioid use disorder especially we really need to um, get people connected to, to medication as quickly as possible to save their life yeah and I think everybody should carry Narcan everybody should get trained the general public mm-hmm. because overdoses are happening everywhere and you know drive-through stoplights everywhere and that is just a life-saving mechanism so that's great that everybody that that comes through the program gets trained Mm -hmm. and access to Mm -hmm. um, that reversal drug so that's fantastic okay well i want to thank you again for for coming and uh, this is such a wonderful group of people that you serve that certainly you know they they fight for our country and they come back and uh, many of them see things and, and experience things that you can't imagine. Uh, so they need to get the care uh, that they deserve. And it sounds like things are um, going well. And so thank you for the work that you do. It's fantastic. And uh, I wish you uh, continued success. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.